Now we'd like to spend the first part of the evening um, with a little bit more reflection around what sati is, mindfulness is. And hopefully you, you've got the sense so far today that mindfulness is indeed really quite a multidimensional quality practice. Um, holding many, many other aspects of the path and the practice within it. Now, another of the dimensions of sati, which in t- uh, is a very distinguishing dimension, is that sati is, of course, cultivational. Hmm? It is volitional. Now, this conservation of intentional mindfulness is also standing in contrast to the tide of habit and reactivity. Perhaps because we can see that very much uh, one of the perhaps characteristics of an absence of mindfulness or sati is impulse. When our life, from we're, we're, we're in a state of reactivity, of movement, towards or away from the range of phenomena that is presenting itself to our attention and to our awareness. That without that intentional mindfulness, habit and impost and much governs the day. And these are the places where we feel actually <coughs> most lost in most helpless. And also when habit and impulse governs the day, then your governed turn leaves the most residues in the mind. Huh? If you look at your own experience by habit and impulse, and you know, you say something you regret, you do something you regret, the a level then of, of kind of complex thinking that follows in the wake of that. In the app, you know, I wish I hadn't said that, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish I'd made a different choice. And yet in that moment, very much absence of sati it often feels like there was no other choice. So this brings it into the domain of bhavana because mindfulness is a cultivation. It is a cultivation, it's a training, it's a commitment, it's a dedication into this. And it is clearly intentional. Now in this sense, without going past too much, it's also to, to acknowledge in this teaching and this path just how much emphasis and how much weight is given to intentionality, to cultivating that quality of, of clarity, of being guided in our lives by clear intention. You know, and again, in, in this, the Buddha was not um, you know, particularly vague, quite so. really spoke about, you know, the, the flavoring of intention. And he really got mindfulness simple about it. You know, he said that if our lives, our speech, our actions, our thought, our lives are guided by the intentions of kindness, compassion, and renunciation, life becomes really quite simple and unsuffering. So we're very aware that in, in mindfulness we're actually not only moving towards elevation of a greater sense of awareness, a greater sense of clarity in the moment by 
that mindfulness is flavored not only by ethics, but it is also flavored dedicated wise intention. Otherwise, mindfulness, where is it going? What is it is it towards? Now, one of the aspects of sati, you know, we spoke earlier on this afternoon about how sati protects and is a guardian, a guardian of the mind, a guardian of the heart. And one of the ways in which mindfulness is perhaps in of the heart is that it exercises a restraining influence. You've sensed that yourself in your own practice, the restraining influence on one mindfulness. And what is it restraining? Well, it's restraining a lot of things. Well, it's restraining uh, the mind from becoming lost in the hindrance, being on in aversion, in craving. I mean, you've probably seen that time and time again when you're kind of going to retreat, you know, you, you, you get up from a sitting meditation, you know, and with the intention to a walking practice, and, and you can just feel that little thought appear, well, you know, like a coffee would be good, you know. And then you can see, actually, the way that mindfulness can kick in, and actually say, not needed. And in many, you know, not helpful right now, it's kind of restraining that impulse. And today, anyways, mindfulness most often, and as it spills over to in our life, and some of you brought this up from your group, but there's an A. It has that restraining factor. You know, maybe I don't need to say that. It's culture. Acknowledgement in that restraint, because, you know, there's such a big, you know, restraint's not a popular word in our question. Uh, you know, and it's so easily equated with suppression. But in my understanding, some is the unwillingness to see something. Restraint is the willingness to see something, but the unwillingness to engage in acts or speech that cause suffering. So that is the restraining element. But another of the really important, I think, restraining elements of mindfulness is very much around this how tendency to, to the narrative, to the embellishment, the buddhi proliferation. And many of you will be familiar with the two dart metaphor that the who have used many, you know, you've, you've probably come across it, but for those of you who haven't, and for those of you who buy it up, I'm going to use it again. But the Buddha uses this metaphor of a person who's shot from down the dart. And it really wouldn't matter whether you were a Buddha or, you know, Joe. This is where it's free. It would be painful. It would be unpleasant. But he said, you know, this one other, we, could, we make, you know, there's different avenues we can follow. And it should be avenue that can be followed is what the Buddha called the second dart. Why did this happen to me? And the person have happened to me. You know, and actually the Buddha talks about somebody coming to help this person who's being shot by the dart out of... He says, no way, you're not touching that dart until I find out where it came from, who shot it, what kind of wood it was made of, why they shot it, you know, where it's hit me, what the prognosis is. And he said, this is the difference, actually, between that insight and non-insight. The person with, with insight, with mindfulness, won't be going to take care of it of embellishment, of proliferation, would actually simply the pair of the dart, the first dart. 
and wouldn't suffer the pain, the emotional trauma, and in the pain of the second art, which is very much tied up in the narrative, in the aversion, again, in the fear, in the anxiety. Now, we can actually see that time and time between in our own practice. That difference, that distinction, between being things with things the way they are and seeing life, ourselves, other people through the lens of the elaborate embroidered stories we have woven about who we are, about who you are, about the way life is. Now I think more and more with, with practice and we, with insight we come to see that this second this second layer is, is the compounded dukkha, the compounded unsatisfactoriness, the compounded suffering that may indeed be optional. And this, this kind of second art is, is, has much to do with this word that John Marie from the board this morning, papancha. And I always feel like if, if you go home tongue, you're going to remember one poly word. This is it. Let it roll off your chest. Get really familiar with it. Let it get planted in your mind. Because Papanjali, if we have trouble, hmm? sometimes it looks attractive. Right? Especially you'll hear of a mental state of boredom. Hmm? It looks really attractive. I could just really spin a little wheel because Papanjali, you know, and really get going about past, future, present. But in reality, it's trouble. And if your pancha is always that movement away from things as they actually are. Remember what we talked about with sati this morning. Sati is the movement over again to simplify and to be with things as they actually are. And sometimes it's really, really helpful to get really familiar with the territory of it to get a feel for it, to get to know it, to lose the infatuation with it, always. Hmm? To lose the infatuation with it, to sense within it how it is, and that's a sad step away from the way things are. And actually that's where there's peace, rather where there's calmness. And that's where there's the ability to be responsive than to be reactive or just simply entangled in our own impulses. So I think I want to leave that there. I'm going to go. I want to finish Christina's story. <sighs> you got a third dart here? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> this shows you, just before I, the questions come up, let me just finish the story, because the story, actually, if you want to read it, it's in Putta, the middle-length discourses. It's the Chula Malunkya Putta which is the short Malunkya, somebody's hit the son of Malunkya, um, Sutta. And in that story, Christina rightly says, by an arrow, falls to the ground and asks these tremendous listers of questions. It's a huge joke by the book. This, because he's, what actually saying is, this is what Papancha does for you. And this goes something like, shall I get the doctor? And, and the gist of it was given by Christina, but it's even funnier because it says, this man falls to the ground and somebody rushes up and says, what were their doctor? And he says, no, before you get the doctor, tell me who the man was who fired the dart. What village was it? His brother's names. What was his sister's names? <laughs> what village did he come from? Was it a big village? What are the small village? Um, 
what was the arrow made of? What was the poison on the arrow? What, and the Buddha, what were the feathers that were on the arrow? And so on, and it goes on to about, there's about 40 questions like this. In other words, it just says, somebody who asks questions in this way will just die. Words, that's where obsessional papancha thinking gets you. Death. In other words, li not literally, but actually your thinking will just go round and round and round. Papancha circles until you die to yourself. Yeah. This is what is really being indicated. Papancha. One of the main meanings of the term papancha, and I think the one, I think if you're going to obsess about this and round, that's what it means, obsession. It actually means obsession. This is the stuff that goes round and round, really embed you in your head, and there's no way of thinking your way out of it. You know, the thinking will only worries in further thinking, in further narratives, and narratives beget narratives, and stories beget stories. And that is a kind of deathly state to be in. So we end up with mindfulness, applying our thinking. Mindfulness is the antidote to that. Now there were some questions and I want to say something else about because I think there are many different categories of mindfulness. But I noticed there were some hands going up. Well, just uh, especially two words might you offer as the best translation of the punishment. Embellishment. Embroidery. Literally the word means to spread out. It means the proliferation are based on thinking. So in other words, it's the idea that when you get even a tiny perception in all that perception, then our thinking just goes like this and spreads out directions. And noticing how much of that papancha is related to what we were talking about this morning, distorted perception, mm. to the way things... That when perception, when sanya is not distorted, when it is attuned, so things are, it is far less productive in terms of papancha. Actually, the very reality that papancha is happening sometimes is a very main clue to us that there's something slightly askew in how we are perceiving. Papancha has a moment. So it's not that, you know, that's the value of Papa. You know, if, if they're trying to something valuable within it, it keeps offering us that clue because the obsession is either fracture, resolve something that cannot be resolved, trying to figure it out, trying to, you know, just manually around it. And it is often a clue to skewed perception. As such, when papancha is there, and it's usually linked the anger we have to what is generally referred to as unwholesome mental qualities. So not only do we have well, we have to have a story about the anger. Not only do we have the jealousy and the resentment and the ill will stabilize stories about them. In other words, they are the underpinnings. Uh, those are the things which as and justify as having those particular thoughts. So as such, by Papa, all of those unwholesome mental qualities which are sustained and fed, just another answer, because that's what they're doing, they're feeding them, are cognitive dissonances. Is that the way of really saying what Christine is saying? That actually cuts us off from reality. 
So papant seeing thing, which positively is linked to avidya. It's linked to cutting us off from within things the way they are. Whereas the wholesome mental qualities, you know, words or attention, such as mindfulness, bring us close to what really is. They, in other words, metaphorize the mind in such a way that, for example, if we take some of the positive mental qualities like rewards, or karuna, loving kindness, and compassion, they take us out to people. And I really want to say also that those of facets, I'm only going to take those two particular mental qualities of metta and karuna, and what kindness and compassion, because actually if you look at the metta sutta, one um, way of translating the metta sutta, um, goes the end of it goes roughly like this. Uh, one who possesses this form of mindfulness, i.e., metta, will not be reborn again. So it's not that metta is another quality in the world. It's metta is another manifestation of mindfulness, another way of being world. As such. It is a way of seeing the world, manifestation. And this is what mindfulness itself is. And one of its variations and one of its particular variations is a way of seeing the world. Seeing the world with attentiveness. With attentiveness. Also see with interest, with curiosity. It's also seeing the world with kindness, seeing the world with compassion. Yes, Art. That's right. It's, it's what's happening in the heart, the heart mind. Yeah, it's the it's the chetana, it's the intention that that Christine has stressed so much. It's the volitional intention behind the action to get. Well, no, there is a there is a distinguishing. I think of the care between papancha and refl and between obsession and reflection. Mm. Uh, it has very important to mark that, you know. Obsession has no freedom within it. Mm. And life has no freedom to put it down. Hmm? Where obviously there are situations and understand recurrent themes that come again and again to visit us because they require more in their being, because they require more insight. But if it's a genuine reflection and investigation quality, there is that freedom to put it down. You know, whereas with obsession, that freedom is markedly absent. Don't we just feel captured by our obsessions? Slips in. And sometimes we can start to reflect on something quite intentionally, and then it says, I new to obsession. You know, because the reflection starts to pick up the flavor of some of the hindrance. So you can feel it, you know, something that began quite intentionally slides into obsession. It does not make it, it is really useful to note that marker because when it's obsession, obsession is of itself, 
in the in these other factors to be brought in to really really pancha. Mindfulness is one of them. Can you hear the comments? I mean, that's okay, I mean, we do, we do need to remember to re yeah. repeat everything. Yes, yeah, so what Jane is referring to is, is the fact that often in um, previous courses, I often refer to for a lot of these Pali words as actually indicating verb forms, not now, actually quite important. So they're indicating processes rather than things. And it's a lot of them to hear that because actually Buddhism speaks primarily in verbs, not in nouns. And so, so things that we hear, and this is kind of just a general point before I kind of refer to what your actually question was about. In some, a lot of the main terms that we utilize in, in Buddhist terminology, such as actually that personally I wouldn't these days want to translate, but want to naturalize into English. One has become the case, although it's in its Sanskrit form, not in its Pali form, nirvana. Or actually, if you want nara, these indicate, and in both cases, they are verb forms. So, to make them into English, it would be nirvana-ing, <laughs> or sangsara-ing, that you're having, or take about this one, dukkha-ing, <laughs> rather than, you know, there is a thing, you know, this thing called dukkha, and I reach a place called nirvana. Uh, having exited a place called Sangsara, are all the, it just that doesn't work. These are all dynamic processes, um, and you'll just have to take it from my word that they're talking about uh, forms in, in uh, Pali. And so actually, even when we're talking things like sati, although this isn't particularly a verb form, what it is indicating in these structures, and this is just part of the way the language is formed, is they're indicating process. A lot of technical and it's worth, if you take nothing else away from what I have just said, and I know it's quite a, quite a lot in Buddhist stuff, if you don't take anything else away from it, just take away the idea that what we're always referring to, even if we're talking practice, are processes. Something that is dynamic rather than static. Even talking about your stuckness, we're talking about something which is actually dynamic rather than actually frozen, um, immovable. And this, this is very important, Sati. I mean, when, when you sit and practice what you <coughs> and, and really bring mindfulness, bring beauty mm. to your body, your mind, what you see is process. And I don't see staticness. Huh? And if we, if we 
sense of possibility. ourselves with that sense of process inwardly. The sense of possibility of transformation is deeply enhanced. Because mainly what we are brings things into the immediacy of process. So we don't want to really talking about the practice. Instead of some, uh, you know, I mean, uh, this kind of to diminish the word nibbana. But it is too easy to get caught in the most idealized, yeah. exalted, exalted romantic destination. If we start, most people consider to be entirely impossible for them. And if moment to think in terms of process, we are realistically thinking of liberating the bonnet from distortion and confusion. Mm. Liberating the moment. No of the in the moment. You know, liberating the moment from everything that distortion and the confusion that causes dukkha. Our suffering in terms of this, and I think that that is such a crucial shift to make because it, it you know, if we're living in like we never romantic vacation spot called Nibbana, you know, it feels much more of a arrive. If you start to think about liberating the moment, things mm. become very, very much possible and accessible. No. If everything is up here. Absolutely. Unanimity is always Absolutely. No, not at all. No, mind implicated in the process. The process implicated in process. And that's why I really encouraged you, you know, mind on today to really contemplate that question of what is the mind, what is your the mind, because again we tend to take things out of the process. You know, we take really important. Really out of the process, and the other thing that we take out of the process is the self. Yeah, and I think it's because really, really important to hear this. this is why I'm dwelling on this. I think to greater length than I probably intended. Become monolithic. For example, when we get into, say, a particularly negative state of mind, we feel it is seek and unchanging, and actually it isn't. With mindfulness, you begin to into even the process, let's take just a, a, a mental state which afflicts a lot of people in the Western world these days, the pro um, depression. When you begin to have the ability to reflect with mindfulness and look at things, process which actually is depression, you'll find it composed of many, many different things to perceive. It's not monolithic in its, in, in its um, flavor once you begin any of it. So that, I mean, let's take a very crude example. When you begin to observe, it arises mental state, but I'm just using this one as an example. You begin to say, for example, here's a depressive moment, a mind moment, another mind moment, followed by another depressive mind moment, which isn't quite as intense as the previous mind moment, followed by another moment, which is more intense than the first one. And, oops, there's a bit of joy. And, and here's another depressive. So, and, and here's a little bit of equanimity. No, no, and here's another depressive moment. And what you get the picture of is not something which is solid, unchanged, another pro fixed. However, of course, this skill, which is a process of being able to apply 
another quality of mind to see that fluctuate very difficult. But once you begin to see it even just in ordinary states, how things are flowing, you begin to understand how no particular state of mind is out of one entity, composed of one thing, of one taste. It's all composed of fluctuating elements, all arising and passing away, which are happening so quickly, must have been. they give the impression of something static. But the other thing that gives the impression of something static, which I think we think seen underestimated, is actually the level of identification. Yes. That's what makes something I and to have a continuity. Because identification, you know, the its own, am this, you are that, seems to attribute a kind of life of continuity to something. And it gives the, the appearance, the facade, of consistency, but the continuity is actually created by the identification which creates the beliefs. Like none of us, again, we're coming back somewhat here to perception. Mm. But for example, you know, like that the body would, in our right minds, for example, believe or assume that our body is unchanging or outside of process. Huh? I mean, most of us would accept the are a process, you know, beginning with our birth and ending with our death. And yet, interest, you know, you know, if we were to ask you, you know, like, who's going to die here, being, we would feel that kind of res that resistance. We don't want to see the process because the self, everything in, gets very much woven into the body through identification. So we would even like to believe, even though we can kind of us tells us it's not true, that the body is also monolithic. But we can kind of, but far from that one again, because it's so obviously not, you know, we only look in the mirror. <laughs> it's so obviously not. Selfie. It's much harder not to crack around the mind, because that's where the sense of is much more identified and creates the idea of continuity. Say you are, we do this with people that we might struggle with. You know, you've had a difficult encounter with someone. We say, no, actually, like this. You are like that. You're, you're an awful person. Hmm? Allow us, of course. Actually, that identification with that belief, perception, doesn't allow us to see anything else in that person except what is so terrible about them. Because the perception, again, is getting selective and solidified. But we're, we're seeing a continuity there which clearly cannot exist with mindfulness. So coming into process is... Coming into a place of process, continuityness, is, is, is actually undoing the identification because all in this world, sense of continuity in this world, is actually born of clinging, not of reality. Emptiness. Of, and what emptiness constantly discovers, what mindfulness constantly discovers, is the essence of fixity, the emptiness of any certainty, the emptiness. This is any state of mind or body which is going to remain the same. Element is what it discovers. Uh, that is, in a sense, what in the tradition they would call the wisdom that is discovered through the practice of mindfulness. Yeah. Steve, what is it in us that does what you just 
described that he's aware of. Mm -hmm. This means opposite to know is experience with this fluctuation. What is that? What is it? Because it's side of, I mean, mm -hmm. I do indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the sense, what it, what is it? I and mean, the question again for those who didn't hear, what is it within us that knows, sees, and uh, yeah, is the observer of all this? Is that pretty yeah. fair? Yeah. Sati. Sati. Keeps slipping. Yes. We yeah. into that place <laughs> of, of of wanting to you know really be the pilot in the cockpit. The and it's, it's, it's a really sticky one to undo. So does it exist? So sati in us, but it's not, it's not in us. It no. is a quality of mind, as we spoke about, as John said earlier on today. Basically, sati is one of the qualities of mind brought to fru fruition, brought to maturity and fruition. I'm going to mention this. Who is nurturing. Yes. One has to bear in mind, and I don't want to go into this, is that the way, very, very briefly, and hopefully it might settle some minds, but probably not all, is of the Buddha. A, that it's conceived in the tradition that immediately follows the death of the mind, when they try to put all of this stuff together, is that the mind, or all of these qualities, account for including all the unwholesome qualities, as well as all the wholesome qualities, is a system. And to a side of the system, volition, which is what you're talking about, or a knower, you don't have to talk about anything being outside wisdom, because it's all of the system, all the elements of the system functioning interdependent. Their beings create the impression of a knower within it. Just as you don't have to think of being together as something within the computer, which is the knower within the computer. It's the system working. That produces the information or whatever it does. But we will talk about our when we talk about investigation. Yes. Your experience works. Mm. That's the bottom line. How do you decide what is the most help helpful? You know, say you're to the bottom, a lot of anger. It seems like you've got a few tools in your toolbox. You know, you could bring mindful of anger, body of anger, you know, you, you could bring loving kindness to the experience. It is really, you know, there's a number of different approaches, but that's the loveliness. Mm. There isn't just one way. Now, up the alley about what works. What works to free the grip, you know, without anger? Now, sometimes you've got to allow yourself to be a little creative here and a little playful. And, it's, and I'm still getting into a, a kind of insistency that says, oh, gosh, I did matter for two minutes. But we have to be angry. That didn't work. I'm going to go and do something else. You know, you may actually need to stay with it a little bit longer. Because multi allow ourselves to move in this landscape of possibility. But we dimensional approach to what is difficult, what is sticky, what is unskillful, difficult. We need to remember our intentions because it's not about 
you know, we can easily with the, and you know, of emotions have across this underlying agenda, I just want to get rid of it, you know. And then every, we need to be really very mindful of that too, because of that underlying agenda is there. Really it's thing we're doing is kind of an expression of that underlying agenda. You know, it looks like meta, but it's a, it a meta with gritted teeth, you know, may I be uh, angry with you, you know. So it's to be she has that agenda. We just need to be mindful of that. But as you have to pre pre be prepared, <coughs> so creative and playful. This is not a one one kind of solution um, show. Really, not well. Mm. Well, my, my feeling about that is no, not necessarily. When you ask necessarily, it could be. could be you need to try another tool occasionally. I mean, the one thing I would actually immediately is a form of my, your question was actually there isn't mindfulness and, the, and, then, and then there's meta. Meta is there a mindfulness that you bring to a situation. And I think this is the way I would put it, retention, any tools in your sati toolbox. You know, and sometimes they're not the bare and the sorts of things that are often spoken about. They're actually much more playful and a lot more construct constructively. Um, you might need, for example, and this is one, just one example, you might need to component block, you reframe the way that you see something. You know, when you've got a neighbour perhaps and you're living in a taming and saying, hey, banging away on your wall uh, and you're getting irritated, then it might be worth reframing. And then a sense, they're just trying to probably put up a, I don't know, a cupboard or a picture or something to reframe it for yourself. Another case, that's mindfully turning towards it and restructuring the way that you're hearing. Now, in just cases, that simple awareness, which I think is what you mean by mindfulness, might work in, in some reverting towards it, seeing what's going on, observing the irritation, and all the sorts of things you do in Buddha says, in forms of Vipassana. Yeah, so there's many, many different tools, and I think you have to keep experimenting. And this is actually one of the things that to keep experimenting. You know, mindfulness isn't isn't a, um, a de facto thing that you just put in place. It's something you have down here, which is with, and that's why there are many different variants of it. Yeah. I mean, I actually listed four appropriate. You have simple awareness. These are four broad categories, and I was going to get onto this, but so it seems that simple awareness is a place to say them. There are four broad categories of mindfulness. One is simple awareness, just watching what comes up, just watching and being with, paying attention to what is this. Then there's one we've spoken, and Christina has particularly spoken a lot about, which is protective awareness. It's going to be unskilled. Guarding the mind. Guarding the mind against going down roads it knows to go down. And actually, that's where restraint is often required in those elements. The second one. Then there's introspective awareness. Well, introspective awareness might be an awareness that says, well, hold on, begin to, why am I getting angry? You know, what are the reasons for it? You know, where you actually mindfulness as well. To untangle a little bit of the emotional qualities that are arising. And that is mindfulness. And finally is the one that I actually mentioned here, which is deliberately for all of these are concepts restructuring the story that you're telling yourself and the found in the texts 
all of these different ways of looking at uh, mindfulness and actually uh, they're all qualities of mindfulness that we can bring. Yeah. This would need to be that attack. Mm. Um, is the reframing, I'm, otherwise it's mm. just an uh, coming out of present moment experience mm-hmm. that's reality. Because story story. Mm-hmm. No, 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 it's coming out of present moment experience. Yeah. It's acknowledging that your might be questionable. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I don't it's have to buy that the neighbor is, I don't have to deal with lovely sound. Like you don't have to make the neighbor into a lovely person who's, no. you know, showering. You might be sounds <laughs> to make your life much happier. <laughs> but you're reframing, or even, there may be other possibilities here rather yes. than just sitting here seething. Yes. Like, maybe I'm going to go knock on their door. It, and as you talk about, you know, like, what's going on here? And, and were they aware? even that this was happening. But it's reframing might be, actually, you know, I'm going to put up some soundproofing, you know, because it's actually really a bit much. Other possible Reframing, it, it's reframing, so stepping out into a sense of abilities than just yes. seeding. I mean, the, the mm. question is that to let go of this, when you experience anger and you are able to repeat itself, story and just be with the anger, it fades away or disappears. But then it re- really deal with it. Uh-huh. So it comes back again. So I guess the question there is, did you that by... talking about well <clears throat> I mean clearly we are not so we are not using mindfulness to disconnect from things right it's kind of inquiry I've spoken about these different aspects of mindfulness <coughs> and you know one of them is that but I don't want inquiry, you know the reflection the inquiry but, and, but somehow I want to also just kind of feed into a sense of doubt that says, oh, well, you know, you know, I didn't meet that because it came back. Well, things don't just disappear like that. Well, unskillful. And actually, I really have to see that some of the kind of uh, more difficult here for unwholesome emotional states we experience, like anger, like fear, like greed are very deeply wired into our consciousness, our protein. So it's not as if like a moment or five moments of mindfulness is on came back. But I, I don't want to kind of feed into doubt that says, you know, somehow I didn't do it right because it, uh, you know, in, in reality, it may very well be that in that moment, liberated that a calm, inquiring, intentional mindfulness that actually you live an almost see moment from anger. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean anger doesn't return, but you can rewire it that you are. I mean, we could go in, this is a very long story, but 
you are. It's called in your psyche. You know, and that is why it's called a training, and that is why, if, you know, the path, but also people see changes within that because, you know, you, it's not as more anger might come back. Is it the same intensity of anger? Is there more inquiry into it? Is there a little bit? You see it actually. Disbelief? Is there a little bit less of, of kind of giving authority to it? Do you know? So she's starting to break up and not being so, uh, such a default mechanism. Mental state. So, I mean, I think it's very important to embrace, you know, some of these more entrenched. There's a lot, but also neural pathways, you know, hardwired neural pathways. With, you know, there's a lot of patience. The effort of, of inquiry, it is, a, it is a training, but don't necessarily doubt efficacy of your attentiveness and your mindfulness in that moment just because something returns. Thanks, easy. I think also the patience element ought to be stressed because there's nowhere in any of the texts that I ever read the book, <laughs> you know, because it isn't easy. And I think probably not easy because on current understandings for very different reasons than the Buddha would have said, but certainly it's not. It's a constant attempt to acknowledge what's going on so much in um, and I think we live in a, and I think this is very particular to the Western world, I don't see it patience. And I don't want to romanticize it because there's lots wrong in the East, but when my time in the East, I didn't used to see that, the level of pain, and even perhaps was a lot greater. We live you know, in a culture which is quick fix. Um, I'm applying my, so we bring that mind state to even this type of practice where we think, okay, constant process, it's a bit like an aspirin, anger ought to go away now. And it doesn't. It keeps on coming back. So it's that, you know, first of having to befriend what's going on. And you know, you have to also acknowledge the movements that take place in something amiss. Example: I know when I started practicing as a teenager, it never occurred to me to think there might be with anger. I just thought that was what you did when something displeased you. Do you know? And then you know, in the kind of light of the teaching, I, I started seeing like maybe this isn't just what you others. You know, maybe there, there's other ways, and maybe actually this is harmful to me, harmful to us. This is just what I do. You know, and people see this in practice over time. The many of these things that started out with being just and question do, or just who I am, becomes much more um, transparent, you know, because he reactions. But, you know, and going back to what John said, you know, like that, uh, I don't think the Buddha was any fool kind of ingrained, recognize, really recognize the intractability. Mm of some of these, these most nerve-selfing uh, states of mind that are so much the domain of selfing and the armor's kind of gone to the... And you know, there's one discourse, you know, especially about the intractable where the Buddha's... If it's still this long list of responses, you know, and, and you know, he says, well, you know, bring some mindfulness. And, and if it still arises, inquire. And if it still arises, cultivate the opposite. Still arises, still arises. You know, it goes to this long list, you know, because it's recognizing, like, if it's... But it's really... And then the last one, I think, is ask for help. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's... it's <laughs> acknowledging, you know, and as John says, you know, more and more we understand this is so intractable. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I was struggling with 
notion that anger is necessarily bad. I mean, I think it's often justified, which is why you might you might feel angry when you have a conversation with your neighbor about the fact that there's anger. Sometimes there's describe that emotion. It's a a difficult one because we don't actually have enough words to describe anger of being unsettled and disturbed. You know, so we use just the word people don't get angry, you know, and then we we put it again into these camps that it's either terribly bad and good face of the unangry. And then we wonder, well, what do we do in the face of injustice? Or what do we do? in the few things they ought to be acceptable, where we actually really do feel disturbed, you know, and then, you know, if you're people... No, the truth, good yogis think, well, you know, I just turn away from the world because I can't bear to be disturbed. And as as says, we don't have enough words to describe this emotional spectrum. Now, you know, he he said, Dalai Lama, and I put it once, you know, and I'm not misquoting this. Anger can be the beginning of powerful altruistic acts of healing. Much prefer, but there's a very big difference in between anger and ill will. And if I was going to use the word, I would manage. It's very when I speak about the unwholesome and the unskillful, speak about uh, ill will. But I'm also aware within ourselves, very delicate territory there, because the difficulty is we need to be so clear and we need to be so because almost always. We think our anger is righteous. You know, powerful acts, so honest and so clear, because if it is that sense of being unsettled and leading to unsettledness of, of healing, altruistic acts of healing, that anger, that feeling of kindness is going to start us on a path of healing, of reaching out, of understanding, you know, it's very of honesty, of reconciliation, but it's not going to be about self, just self-interest. Concerned with, you can see, ill will is really not altruistic at all. You know, and and you know, it really is territories. You know, my protection, my benefit, my my safety. So it's just one of those terror camps. You know, <coughs> really, we need to be very sensitive to boards. Certainly, not fall into those. We'll come into it just as good yogis kind of experience anger, because you know we and, and this we will. It, it, I think when we talk about. Uh, kind of wise effort, because passivity. It's, it's all too easy to to put sati or mindfulness into this domain of passivity. Spoken about, which is very which it is not at all. Can I add something to this? Yeah. Because I think there's <clears throat> something we've said now that's very important to this, which is what is the intention behind the anger, which has its form of anger that's usually criticised in Buddhist psychology. Is the form of anger, you know, in other words, as its intention, the desire to hurt the other. In some way, it was to get back at them in some way. So if somebody does something wrong to you, hurts you, and wants in my anger, really wants to get back at them, and in some way, even if it's only mentally, intention to see them hurt in some form or another. If the completely different, for example, is to right an injustice. It's com- in fact, one might call that, as often in Tibetan Buddhism, they might call it wrathful compassion. And do something. Yeah. A compassion which is there, which is active, and will go out and try. The causes. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that quality of, of saying no to, and if you look, it's of suffering. You know, it's just mm. one of the dimensions of compassion. <coughs> Not only, I mean, compassion, someone like the historical imagery of, you know, Kuan Yin, uh, the crossbow and deity, it's appeared historically at times as an armed warrior. Intention mm. hmm? to harm and shield and the whole thing. But it, it's that kind of ferocity again, which is not the intention of, but certainly the intention to say no to the causes. Strikingly, some suffering. Some of you will know very 70 and ended up with the Tibetan images around some of this stuff. And when I first went to India in 1970, there was these lovely in the Tibetan monastery. One of the first things I was confronted with was all this imagery, and I was going around the temple going, and what's that? Soft figure, mm, soft figures. And uh, the Tibetan who was taking me around would go, oh, that's compassion. And I'd see another lovely heads. Oh, that's compassion. Then I came across these figures with flames all around them, with a, a ring of head as a garland, a skull cup brimming full of blood, which was overflowing. And I go, well, what's that? The reason why I told you that story, oh, that's compassion too. <laughs> Really what it's showing, and the reason is right, is because it shows you the different qualities to it, and one might be wrathful, might be the anger if the intention... Mind what we said. But it's really looking closely at the intention. That's the important part about it. And it's also very unwholesome. Earlier, that, you know, one of the... <coughs> one, of, one of the kind of clues of whether something is wholesome or... I mean, because it, is that the unwholesome does lend itself to much more narrative and story. And we, you know, I think that's part of kind of like trying to legitimize the clue about emotions that we don't know how to deal with. You know, we tell a lot of stories about them. And so that is after wholesome, there'll be about the, mm. the wholesomeness, of, the unwholesomeness. I mean, the, you know, often if it's more skillful in right response, a much more fluid movement into right action, right speech, narrative is that. Whereas where, it, where it's more complex or surrounded by distortion, you know, it's almost like the narrative quote in the text actually um, getting in the way of what is skillful. And there is a conger is completely X, which very much supports what Christine is saying, and it goes roughly like this: that anger is understandable, i.e., there's a story, but is always unjustifiable, yeah, and that. You know, it's actually saying taking it out of if there is the desire to hurt, then it's unjustified. Is it, it, it often goes with the forms of anger, I think, that we're terming unwholesome. The problem with English, English very easily, simply doesn't make fine enough distinctions. Often these distinctions are made in the original languages, which are not, we can't make in English. Thank you. 
People did, did. Okay, let's uh, try and. Did, it, um, did everybody hear that or do I need to repeat it? Okay, good. Well, the question was about or anything, something. Particular situations arising which you really have no logical, rational solution to them. Or mindfulness, that's anything of that form. Okay. Prayerful, not interesting phrase. Um, but it's really what you're trying to indicate is a mindfulness which is turned to investigation as such, but just by being with what feelings are around, it's simple awareness. The sensations? That is simple awareness, as far as I can see. Ease it apart. Awareness, it's being mindful of what is going on without having to investigate it, without actually beginning to you. Now, for certain things, that is perfectly okay. We don't have to utilize the whole toolbox on every occasion. In some things, for example, which define the feeling and logical, rational investigation, then the only thing to do is to remain with, start to attach ourselves and sensations and whatever is arising and not attaching ourselves to them. Once we trouble again, to them though, in i.e., this is a nice feeling, yeah. then we're heading for. Yes, yes. <laughs> the simple answer is yes. The mind. That the, question, the question yeah. was that mindfulness is an active quality of the body it has an object. It yes. is mindfulness of emotions, mindfulness of thoughts, mindfulness the Buddha's great body, mindfulness of seeing. Yes. This actually, to put it into its context, actually one of the discovery about the nature of the mind particularly the nature of consciousness, including mindfulness, which is correlates of consciousness. In other words, there's consciousness associated with mindfulness and other mental factors. Say it again. And his great discovery... Pardon? Okay. I'll okay. That his great discovery was that, that mindfulness and consciousness to have an object and is possess an object because actually consciousness itself always has, along with a lot of other mindfulness is simply a correlate of consciousness. It's a mental factor, a lot great discoveries of mental factors which arise with consciousness. Now, the Buddha's more Hindu thought, say, is this idea that you can't, um, often to the annoyance of a lot of people that like sort of 
but you can't actually have consciousness without it being conscious of something. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, there is not free-floating consciousness, just like you said. There isn't free-floating mindfulness. In in terms, ways turn towards an object. Now that was a great discovery, and I really put it in the history of the 18th century, the history of thinking, which is that wasn't even thought about in Western philosophy until the late 19th. On that idea. That idea. It was somebody called Franz Brentano and then Edmund Husserl and loads of others who then picked up that and they called it phenomenology yeah, in the late 19th century. Um, that was the Buddha's early discovery. Yeah. Yes, we can. One more question. <laughs> and why you ask me? It's very... <laughs> I have one more question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Mindful is I don't think it is. Well, this is my own take on it. I mean, Christina might have another one, but my own take on that article in one of the UK news is mindfulness. Uh, it's retribution. Um, I've, actually, I wrote an article of which you know, papers about this, um, that actually a lot of what passes for dealing with criminality, the reason all of our societies are full of them, is actually merely retribution. It's not meant to be very interesting. You find rehabilitation. Um, and actually, one of the big things that you find scattered, and this is very, you know, and good, scattered throughout every Buddhist tradition. You heard me refer this morning to the first serial killer story, Gulimala. Yeah, it's a story. Um, whether it's true, I doubt it, but it's a bond redemption. Um, the whole idea is within Buddhist practice is that. Nobody is beyond. Be, nobody is beyond you know, being able to attain the goal. Terrible what people do because people do what they do through causes and conditions. And yes, it's absolutely terrible. But if you're going to in our societies and even worse in some other societies, it's terrible what people to do. We do cases. Be angry towards something. Be angry towards the act, not the actor. In many cases, because it might be just. Um, what the actor is deserving of, and it might be tough, and I don't mean is in the sense of trying to rehabilitate somebody, is compassion. Yeah. That's going to take a idiot compassion, either. Yeah. Um, now, I think personally in the Western world, it's a huge revolution in thinking to get our heads around that, of turning away from simple retribution. Buddha's message was a kind of justice which actually is aimed at reform. And rehabilitation, um, the goal. It's nobody was beyond it. This is why you have all these stories of criminals who go on to attain at all, saying there is no essence called evil within anybody, because there is no essence, and, 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 and it's a trap that we get ourselves into when we start thinking in terms of this person. In the press in Britain, every time you find one of these horrible cases, you know, it's always you know, this evil person attribute an essence. You know, um, and it's a very cheap way of dealing with somebody. To
I think that's to them in this way and then pigeonhole them and say they're you know, irredeemable and all the rest of it. I mean, I think it's a very... There has to be revolutions in thinking, however, to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, that's my own take on it. First of all, we all need to... A complex question that could take several hours, but one thing, a couple of things I would say is of term and stop being a little bit so insular and learn from each other if because societies are very real points and if you know it's a very cultural term how we define society familiar with our own references if we look out across the world we see different societies with very many <coughs> different responsibly uh, criminality to violence to harm that you know range from purification response retribution to a much more community cooperating responsiveness involvement with rehabilitation. Now it is very, I think it's a very marked victim's family that has been done, uh, for example, in this country where the death penalty exists and I think almost units have the right usually to go and watch a prisoner executed. Um, but that doesn't anonymously have said it doesn't make them feel any better. Mm. But, you know, I'd, and wounded, take away from the fact that, you know, we live in societies that are often really scarred, a thing, hindered by violence, which is often, seems inexplicable. Now, here's a very radical of ignorance in this teaching, is that harm and the unwholesome and the unskillful are born are and that no one is to blame for ignorance. Now that does not mean things in out of ignored or justified, but it is taking the selfie about how our ignorance. Now if we all really look at our minds, and as we talked about this morning, mind, minds that our hearts exist in a state of potentiality. I know that if I look at my mind to be born, you know, given the right conditions and uh, different conditions in my life, you know, I happen to be quite fortunate. <laughs> but, but, you know, reasonably sane family, I mean, insane, but, you know, by any standards, you know, street. I know, I mean, I got fed, I got cared for, you know, I went to school. You know, I, I didn't have people shooting at me on my mind be. I have people hating me. If, I, if the conditions in my life are different, what was it? What would the potential of well, when we sit here? Now, would I, am I to blame? That doesn't mean the absence of responsibility. But to healing, to take here, and we see our minds spinning around in judgmental, harsh on thoughts. It's really helpful as a situation to take the blame out. And I always think it's helpful in a step of healing and usage, you know, in many, the blame out. Because then we can actually start to do, really look at the, at the ignorant, those who are the traditional form practices of compassion. The practice of compassion starts with nowhere to blame, helpless, you know, powerless, suffer terrible tragedies in life, and yet are to the perpetrator. You know, a child with cancer, person suffering really with age, and then it leads right from there. I think we really need to address of those who, who cause harm as a compassion practice. Now, actually, as a huge acknowledge the challenge of embracing ignorance without blame. Arising from challenge, I think, both inwardly, you know, how, how we blame ourselves when things are, we do exact confusion and distortion, how easily we move into it's my fault, you know, I'm an inadequate person, set of harm. Okay, the same with others when we see harm caused, but it's really, it's a spectrum of degrees and take responsibility. But where do we begin? The question is not condoning ignorance, 
not not saying that we don't, but taking the ability for our acts or, or meet the the unskillfulness of the acts of others. In the blaming, we can blame out in my understanding is what enables those steps to be taken. Keep I don't have anything but vengeance. There is just to finish off, just there are things like this. Sprang to mind as Christine was talking, there's actually a very clear indication in one sutta what the Buddha actually felt about things. Um, it's, a, it's a sutta which is in the Diganakaya called the Chakravartin Siyananda Sutta. But it's saying about, it's about rulers. Um, so obviously the um, society was very different in ancient India. It's, somebody asked the Buddha the question, how should a ruler punish their wrongdoers? Well, it says here, pretty well, you can transpose that into modern terms. Uh, how should a society deal with its wrongdoers? Well, there's a within here that the Buddha says that a ruler should punish their wrongdoers within their wayward society, just like a loving parent will chastise and harming our children. In other words, out of love to stop them from doing wrong again. A little bit of a taste, a little bit of this. Not out of hatred, not out of vengeance. Yeah, so you get a little had this sudden bit of flavor what the Buddha felt about. And just because Angulimala, you know, this first recorded serial killer, you know, to hate me, you know, and flash of understanding and changed his ways, mm. you know, kept going to the Buddha saying, how come people, the Buddha said, guess what, how come people are still throwing tomatoes at me, rotten vegetables at me, stones at me everywhere I go? You are still burying it, you know. It's just still, you know, your heart has changed, but you, you know, that actually the responsibility, the consequences of those acts. So it's actually not saying, which is okay. You have a moment of enlightenment, you know, liberation, and everything's hunky-dory. Are there to protect? That's why, you know, we have things like institutions, organizations that really do protect people, other people from harm. Anyway, we... Mm -hmm. need to stop on that note, which is a I'm, very I'll long discussion. By that. <laughs> Use this. So, uh, again, I really encourage you to mind that it's a walking period. We <laughs> were due to come back at quarter to nine, short sit. It's 25 after 8, so I'd encourage you to come back at 5 to 9 just okay. for a Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.